I'm a trans advocate and activist, and my kids, I call them my kids, my community kids, they are very important to me. And I tell these stories so that they know that there are better things ahead if you just persevere. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro. Welcome to season two of Live at the Lortel. We created this podcast to invite artists working off-Broadway to share their current projects. As we start season two, theater is still on pause. But while our stages are silent, the theater is undergoing a reckoning of twin pandemics, the COVID-19 virus and the virus of systemic racism. This season, we're sharing this platform with different co-hosts from the BIPOC community as we roll up our sleeves to talk to artists about creating art during COVID as well as systemic racism in our community and country. We hope these conversations will help motivate and begin to heal as we discuss these painful issues. Welcome to Live at the Lortel. My name is Eric Ostro. I'll be your host as we welcome a very special guest. But first, I want to introduce my co-host, my dear friend, John Andrew Morrison. John, say hello. Good morning. Hello, everyone. And hi, Eric. I'm excited to get to learn more about our guest today. I'm a big fan of our guests. Let's give a warm welcome to Puya Mosini. Welcome, Puya. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. morning. You look lovely this morning. Oh, it's natural lighting. (laughs) (laughs) When we're done with the call, I think I need a tutorial on how to do the natural light. So (laughs) you look great. How are you? How are you since the world has blown up and here we are, what, seven months later? If a year ago, somebody would have said this is where we would be, I'd be like, no, I, I don't know what you've been smoking. I think at this point, it's kind of like, are you still standing? Are you still reasonably sane? Are you mm. still healthy? That's a mark of an accomplishment this year. I also feel very grateful because in our world of creative people, people kind of like decided to change things around. You can't do it in live theater. You're going to do it on Zoom. So I've gotten to do a lot of projects with many different people across the country that I wouldn't have been able to do. But I mean, we live in a world of uncertainties and this year more than any other year, but I'm still here. I still have my love for life, for the art that we do, for a better world I come from a place that I grew up during uncertainty, during Mm. revolution and war and all of that. And when I look back on that, I see that those people, they survived, they persevered. It was hard. There is a lot of trauma, but I have one basic belief about life. Life is only live forward. Mm. That's what As you bring it up, can you give us the five to 10 minute version of where you grew up and the time that you grew up and who you are as a person and when you came over to America? I'll try to stick to a five-minute version, but I'll <laughs> right. end up being 15. Okay. I was born in Iran a year before the Iranian Revolution. So my first memories as a child is a country that was going through turmoil. My grandmother told me the story that she used to put cotton balls in my ear and put me in the bathtub because it was the only place that didn't have windows because Mm. there was shootings and things happening around. My first memory as a child is being on the street with my mom as a two, three-year-old, and there's shooting on the street, and we ran to a clothing boutique to hide behind the displays. So 
that's kind of like my earliest experiences as a child. And then the Iran-Iraq war, which lasted eight years, bombings, power outages, food rations, mm. this idea every time there was bombing, is this going to be your day? Or are you going to survive this? And that's just trauma that as a child you absorb, but you don't quite understand it. Now I'm starting to understand it because I have the point of view to understand what that really means. But also people usually ask, how do you do it? And my mom says, well, when you don't have options, you just do the one thing that you can do. You get up, you go to work, you try to enjoy your family, you have family gatherings whenever you can, because life is just that much more precious. I grew up in a very middle class family. There were really no artists, no artists that worked in their art as a way of living. My grandfather taught me how to sketch as a child. My dad had passion for music and movies, which is where my passion came from. And probably the seeds for my passion for acting was because in a world that was very bleak, very dark, very gray, you would put that VHS tape like in your big VCR. And suddenly for that hour, hour and a half, there wasn't a war. There weren't food rations, there were some power outages, and that was magical. That was magical. I believe in that magic. That magic is so deep within me, that idea that there can be this other world with color and, and love and joy and all of those things. So then the war came to an end, but then I have my own problems of trying to find my gender identity, my gender expression in a country that had like no interest in diversity in that sense. But as I say, I have a sassy soul because I lived in a country that always told me, no, this is how you should be. And while I learned how to hide and kind of like put what the world wanted to see in front of them behind it, I was somebody else. Even my mom says, I saw myself as a girl. I always say I was the most adjusted little girl the world had ever seen until the world told me that that was not how the world saw me. Mm. And fast forward a decade or something until my parents realized that the only way that there was a future for me was to leave the country and find a haven somewhere else that my mom left Iran and kind of like went looking on this mythical journey of finding a home for me. And we ended up in the States 20-something years ago. I went to Fashion Institute of Technology because everybody thought I'd be a designer because I'd mm. been sketching since I was like four or five years old. And it seemed more realistic of an occupation than being a performer. And I was a designer. I then became a massage therapist as kind of like a journey in my own life to find healing and my own truth and positivity. And I started doing that about 15 years ago. And that led me to acting, you know, 20 something years ago, I wanted to be an actor, but to be honest with you, <laughs> the world had no interest in a gender non-conforming person of color in 2000, they didn't. I met with a lot of rejection, a lot of doors closing in my face, a lot of people not being kind on sets. Hmm. But I say all of that because, as you know, I'm a trans advocate and activist and my kids, I call them my kids, my community kids, they are very important to me. And I tell these stories so that they know that there are better things ahead if you just persevere. 
if you believe in your truth. And then the right people will find you and support you and love you and you will become more grounded in who you are and where I am in my life. As you asked earlier, I mean, it's 2020. I can be like, oh my God, it's just such a great year. That would be a total lie. But where I am, I have come to like myself, which has been a long journey. I am grateful for my voice that I get to share with my community and for my community as just one humble voice among many. And that gives my life purpose. And for that, I'm very grateful. That is amazing. I had a question. You said, I'm not going to harp on this because I'd love to start talking about your craft and your work, but you said your mom was the one that started the journey for you to get out of Iran because she knew that this was not going to be an environment for you. I'd love to talk about the relationship with your mom and how she kind of came to say, oh, okay, well, this is my child and we need to get out of an area, an environment that is not going to be good for her. I think this goes back to my stubbornness. My stubbornness borders on sassiness, borders on survival skills, whichever you want to call it. I guess it's the PR people, they'll find the right word. It wasn't an easy transition. It was, for lack of a better term, I kind of forced my parents, not directly, but I was suicidal and I tried to commit suicide 10 plus times. I was assaulted. So things happened. And at some point, as my mom would say it, they came to realization of we're either going to have a dead son, as they saw me at the time, or we're going to have an alive trans child. And that was a huge epiphany, if you may, for my parents, because also we have to take into consideration this was before internet. If you didn't know a person, a particular person, then you just didn't know of their existence. And to my parents' credit, they had never heard the term trans. They had never met somebody that they knew was trans. So I might have as well told them that you may not know it, but I'm part Martian. That probably <laughs> would have been easier for them to understand because at least they'd heard of Mars. But I think I was just so adamant that I knew who I was that I thought there is no other life if I can't be of myself. And at some point they're like, okay, well, I guess she knows. She knows because she's not going to stay alive for long this way. Love shows up, right? And what a blessing that your parents had that capacity to love and take some action. I read that incredible Advocate article interview that you did. It's stunning. And I'm just meeting you today, but my experience of you is so joyous. I'm really interested in how you have come to joy in your life. Reading the article, some of it is very harrowing what you've gone through, but it seems like you've come to another place where you can experience gratitude and experience joy. And I'm just curious about your experience of that or how you came to that. I look at it as all a journey. I'm kind of irreverent in thinking about life as just one long video game you kind of go through it and things come at you and you have to fight through it. And if you fight through this level, then you can get to the next level and so on and so forth. And I think this soul searching journey that I had was finding out why, why. And this is going to sound a little crazy. So I apologize to the audience if this is going to sound just a tiny bit crazy, but I remember very specifically 
when I was about 17 and it was towards the tail end of my suicidal period. It was a very dark period, but I felt a little light go on inside me, like in my soul, you know, being an actor, like, oh my God, I felt a light go on in my soul. But I could almost see it in my mind's eye. And at that time, it was this tiny little light. But what that light was, this sense that there is a purpose somewhere, that there's a reason, because as I'm sure you know, my community, especially the trans part of the LGBTQ community has a very high suicide rate. And there are a lot of people who succeed. Obviously, I was really bad at it. Or I believe that there was a reason. I think the world kind of doesn't let go of you until it's done with you. And it came from this sense of, I feel like there's something that the world wants from me. And I've gone through a lot of things like an abusive marriage, assault, and a whole lot of things. But every step, I've gotten to this place of, I like who I am. I like what I stand for. I like the fact that I never think I know everything. And the sense of gratitude comes from the fact that I have seen how dark it is. And so even on the darkest day at this point of my life, I'm still a winner compared to where I used to be and how I used to feel about myself and my existence and being trans and all of those things. And now I get to talk to young trans and queer kids, whether they're in Iran or Turkey or Pennsylvania. And I get to tell them that, you know, the world has made you think you're sick. The world has made you think somehow that you are less worthy. And from my personal experience, I am telling you, they are full of crap because they don't know what they're talking about. They're not doing it out of malice. They're doing it out of ignorance. And having gone through all of that, I mean, I'm interviewing with you two gentlemen. How can I not have gratitude for this? I know where I was 20 something years ago. And I know where I am now. And that gives me the gratitude for a life that I can live on my terms with people that I love and respect and I'm inspired by. I get to have been taught by great teachers like Maggie and Charlie. I get to work with people who I respect and I am in awe of. What is there not to have gratitude for? And that is in no way, I'm not saying like every day I wake up and I'm like, hello world. <laughs> um, I'm definitely not saying that, but I'm saying I look at my whole life and I have made it on my terms. Whatever the world did to me, it couldn't take away my unhingedness. It couldn't take away the child in me or the love that I have for humanity or my love for making people feel things through the craft of acting. So all of that combined, how can I not be grateful? That is awesome. Beautifully said. I want to talk some about your work as an actor. The show that you did, She, He, Me, and specifically Our Town from the Pride Plays. Talk about your first off-Broadway experience that you had and what that was like. Oh my God, now I don't know what was the first off-Broadway, but I will talk about the two specific things that you mentioned. Doing Our Town, it was actually interesting because that week I was asked, invited to go to Cannes. France, because I had done a Pantene commercial last year for the month of Pride. 
And they invited me to go there to represent and to be a representative of the community and do panels and all of that. And they were going to put me up in a great hotel in Cannes and do interviews and have the glam squad of, you know, zhuzhing me up and, you know, it's like all of that stuff. But I couldn't go because our town, a reading was in the middle of that week. And I spoke to my agents and my agents are like, no, we think that you should stay and do the Pride plays because it was the opening play of last year's festival. And yeah, I mean, I've never been to Cannes. Who doesn't want to be sent to Cannes and paid to be in Cannes and, you know, zhuzhed and all of that stuff. And that's the honesty. But looking back, I definitely made the best decision because here was a multicolor, multi-ethnic, multi-gender expressive cast, people who I call my family, my children, my brothers, my sisters, they were all in that cast. And to be in a play which is such a cornerstone of American plays, but look at it through a whole different perspective, that was something I am very proud. You're making me be a little teary, so I apologize. Please don't um, apologize for that. Beautiful. I am very proud to have been part of that production because looking back, I can see how significant it was that here's this play, which is very cis, very heteronormative, very white, for lack of a better term. And here we were, people from all over the world, different ages, different gender expressions. And that was a significant moment in my life. And I also got to have a glass of wine with Michael Urey, which was even better. It was awesome. That was really awesome. As for she, he, me, that was extremely precious to me because it was written by somebody who I love and respect very much, Raphael Emekuri. And again, the cast and the fact that we were talking about these outsiders in a Middle Eastern environment, kind of like a Manasa, whether it's North African, Middle Eastern, that area, which culturally it resonated very much with where I come from. And to get to play this very strong trans woman who is kind of like a mom in that setting, but also because queer characters of Middle Eastern descent don't get a whole lot of spotlight but to be in something like that, for it to be seen by people in Europe, by people in different parts of the United States, you say, why am I grateful? Because I've gotten to do things that to me have a lot of value. And to get to work with those people, the actors, the artistic directors, the director, Sivan Batat, I think if you look for gratitude, you will find gratitude. And I'm always trying to look for gratitude because... I think it's what makes life sweeter. <laughs> awesome stuff. And I just want to say your Zhuzh squad and your cam is on the way. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned them. And so I just want to go back and talk about the building of craft and studying the craft. But you mentioned Maggie Flanagan. And before we got in this interview, we're talking about how important that was. So I'd just like to hear about your experience in training in the craft and what that was like for you. And how do you use it to um, the day? It was life-changing. 
I think part of it is because I was a victim to this false narrative about what it means to be an actor. It's kind of like, you know, you wake up and you go in there and they discover you and somebody points at you and it's like that girl or that boy. And that's kind of the narrative which Hollywood perpetuates. And if that's the only way you know the narrative, then you believe that that's how it works. You kind of walk into a room and somebody is just zooming around and they just look at you and ta-da. But going through the two years at the studio with both Charlie Sandlin and Maggie Flanagan, that was eye-opening. I would say the most important part was the respect for the craft, the respect for the process and holding yourself accountable. And what do I mean by that? You being your biggest crapometer. If you're giving out crap, you should be your best gauge. And the way that Charlie and Maggie keep instilling this in you, this respect for doing good work, for being open, for being present. I would say that first year studying Meisner, I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? I felt like I seriously sucked. And Charlie can sometimes be a little harsh, but now I look back on it and I realize it is his passion for work. He wants everybody to bring everything that they have. And it makes him so passionate and involved, which makes him frustrated when people aren't doing their best, their most. But now that I look back, I realize what he was doing. I've had the honor of having studied with both Charlie and Maggie and the things they show you, the way they put you in touch with yourself, with your imagination, which is the basis of Meisner, of trying to imagine those as-if situations. And how do you feel about this? And how do you feel about what you're saying? And what is your relationship with the person you're talking to? And what is it you want? And what are you doing? All of those things, at that time, it feels like a formula. But as you go forward, you realize it's not really a formula. It's those things that in real life we have. We just don't think about it. We have very specific relationships with people we're talking to. We have very specific feelings about what we're saying and who we're saying it to. And we're trying to accomplish something. And, you know, I'm always looking for little tidbits from actors and performers that I respect of seeing what is their idea of good acting? What is acting about? And it's this idea of you do all of that work, you ask all of those questions of like, where were you before? And how do you feel about this person? And so on. So you can just be in that moment and kind of erase everything around you and just be with that scene. And that's, that's priceless. If there's anything I've seriously missed in these seven months is to be able to be with someone in physical space and get lost and get lost, lose your soul. I don't know if Charlie said this, but I say, if you're acting and it doesn't cost you anything, why should the audience care? Ooh, yeah, they said. <laughs> yeah, they've definitely, I mean, you've just taken me back 25 years, 26 years to being in the room with Maggie and Bill Esper at the time, who was the other teacher. There's an investment that you put into your craft. And I find now, even though I don't do much acting now, but 25, 26 years later, the work makes so much more sense to me now. And you're able to apply Meisner to not only your acting, but 
to everything in your life. For me, Maggie taught me how to stand up for myself and how to really know what I'm feeling and share that and always know that. As a trans activist and going into this Meisner work, it must have been mind-blowing, this sense of how do you feel standing up for yourself? I can't imagine what I will be epiphanies honest. you had. Yeah, I don't know if I would have publicly come out had I not been an actor. And I mean, I've come out through different stages of my life, but at some point I was like, okay, that's it. I'm just going to go and hide and be like everybody else. But me coming out publicly, which then led to the advocate article that you mentioned, was this idea of lending yourself to a role, finding the character's truth, and subsequently you have to find your own truth because how can you be truthful with a character if you're not being truthful with yourself? And that was my moment of true epiphany when the two things merged, being an actor and being an activist, because I'm very honest about it. I was the least likely activist. That was not my path. I was working on two projects that dealt with these characters who were dealing with gender issues. One project was called Gender. One was called Death of the Persian Prince. And I was in the process of rehearsal for these two projects that like I had this moment. And, you know, when I say like Charlie and Maggie are somewhere in my mind, it was this moment of how can I live these characters truth if I am not open with my truth? And of course, you know, most people come out to two people, five people. I came out to 3000 people on <laughs> Facebook. I don't do things small. I just, you know, boom. And I thought that that was going to be the end of my career, but I felt it was the right thing to do. I had to stand in my truth for myself, for the child in me who had gone through a lot of stuff, and for every other person out there who is looking for someone to give them just a little bit courage to be who they are, whatever their age may be. So what you were asking, that sense of truth, which you know, Charlie, and it's always about truth. Is what you're doing, is it truthful? Are you doing it truthfully? That pushed me to say, well, if I keep talking about you, know, truth, truth, truth is great as a concept, but that was when it just came to the forefront and I'm like, okay. And no less, I also came out on the day of marriage equality because I wasn't going to have Supreme Court upstage me. But truth, when they say truth will set you free, there's truth to that. There's truth to that. I am free. I'm sure it also unhinged something in you to be a better actor, to have certainly more confidence in the work that you do, because now that thing is off your back. Now you can just be out and live your life to the fullest and most honest. Exactly. And a lot of people commented, I looked younger afterwards. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> it's exactly what you're saying. It was the weight, the weight on my shoulder, the fear of being found out. And I'm like, okay, we're done with that. I'm not going to live in fear. To follow up on that, in the article in Want for a Better Word, you talked about the journey from passing to owning trans identity in, say, on a set in a casting room. Can you talk about that experience of trying to pass and taking ownership almost of your identity? When you're passing, 
And for those who don't really know that it was a way of survival for many people and the queer community is not alone in that. There have been people of color through the decades who've tried to pass as Caucasian for all the reasons that we are aware of. When I first came to New York, the reason that I wanted to pass was because that would ensure that I'd be safe that I wouldn't be harassed or assaulted. And when I said that 20-something years ago, the industry has no interest, I was doing background work on the show Sex in the City. And a fellow background actor, he outed me in holding while we were waiting between shots and we're all sitting kind of like in a large circle and I didn't even know him. And he kind of like talked very loud across the room about whether or not I'm taking hormones. And then suddenly everybody looked. So that was fear because I didn't know what could happen if they knew. So that was my experience on trying to pass. And then I got better at it. I went through my transition. I was fortunate in some ways that I fit into this cis-heteronormative classic beauty look. But what I tell people is while on the surface I may have looked like anybody else, the baggage was still there. The fear was still there of being found out of all the horrible things that we know happens to trans women. But when I came out, it was almost like this moment that the scars of the years were there, kind of like the blood is, you know, coming out the side of my mouth. But that's the moment that I get up and I'm like, come on, show me the best that you have. And that was my moment. I didn't feel I was some great hero or anything, but I felt I have nothing to lose because what I'm losing now is I'm basically telling the world, you're right, I should be in hiding. I should be apologizing for being different from you. I should be holding my head a little lower than you because how grateful I should be that you are treating me as a semi-equal. And then that transition went to, I have nothing to apologize for. I haven't done anyone any wrong. I haven't taken anything from anyone. I have lived my life as best as I could, trying to be as good of a human as I can be. And also, I've said this for many years in my life, and it may sound corny, but I firmly believe that when you stand in your light, when you stand in your truth, the right people, the people worthy of your love and your respect and your companionship, those people will stand by you. They will support you. They will love you. They will care for you. They will be your friends. And those people who don't because of who you are, I also say this about employers because I've also worked with performers and casting about working in inclusive projects and alike. And somebody said, well, what if I come out, but that would mean that I'm not going to get a certain job. And this is my belief. I don't say that other people should believe it. But I said, would you honestly want to work with someone who wouldn't want to work with you if they knew who you really are? I wouldn't. I would not want to give the privilege of my talent, my humanity to someone who doesn't consider me to be an equal human. And that is what has changed in my life. I don't apologize. But what that has opened to me, I get to share this 20-something years of apologizing, of feeling that I should be grateful for crumbs, that I should be so happy to even have a tiny little space at the table. But 
why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't everyone? We're talking about equality. We're talking about equity. We're talking about personhood. When people say inalienable rights, it doesn't say, but unless they're queer, Hmm. but unless they're of a particular color. So as a naturalized American, I believe in the things we say, sometimes not so much the things we do, but the things we say, because what has been written is that we all have piece of this pie. We all have equal pieces of this pie. And I believe in that. And it's no different when it comes to color or gender expression or sexual orientation or whatever it is that makes you kind of like not being the cool kids club. And it's taken me a long years, but I am just fine who I am (laughs) and where I am. And the fact that I get to support my kids, show them that they are loved until they get to a place that they believe it. That, that is amazing. You have a new feature film coming out called See You Then, which I yes. want to mention, directed by Mary Walker. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that project. I know it doesn't come out till next year, but yes. I know you love to give the opportunity to talk about such projects coming out. You want to touch on that? Getting that project was one of those actor dream stories. I had done this short film five years ago by an amazing trans writer and director. And this movie had made its way through the festivals. And Murray Walker had also had a short film in some of those festivals. So she had gotten to see my short film twice over one weekend. And when she was writing the script for the feature, she had written it with me in mind. And when time came for casting and actually doing the production, there were a few people that were tapped that are bigger names than I was, and they had declined. But that was just my luck because I got to have the role. And the story is a beautiful story. I don't want to tell you what the story is, but it's about love. It's about making choices. It's about seeing the truth and the consequences of our choices and being at peace with them. And to be on a set where I was the star of the film opposite my amazingly talented and beautiful co-star Lin Chen, who's an amazing artist herself. And to get to spend those days in this very inclusive, friendly environment of inclusive, of gender expression and color and just to be my truth, being that environment, it was, oh my God, like I can't really tell you because if I do, probably my mic will short out, but it was like, (laughs) and also to be in LA all of January, (laughs) that was also very nice. But to be in a story written by women, directed by women, where A trans character is not seen through a fetishized point of view and coming out is not the focal point of this character. It's about life and the decisions we make and the prices we pay for the decisions that we make. Again, it's one of those moments in my career up to now that I feel, yay, grateful. Blessed. I just want to remind our audience, because we do have participants here, too, that you are welcome to ask questions. We can either do them live or you can type them in the question and answer button. But I just want to remind our audience that you can ask questions of our magnificent guest. Puya, do you feel, and John, I know you have a question coming. Do you feel that the tide is turning a little 
for trans actors, for everyone. When people say tide, I get a different visual. I think it's all one long journey. It has ups and downs. I don't think we can ever unsee what we saw. And the thing about Tide is that it comes in and then it goes out. But I feel it's all a journey. And if you look at the history of movies or theater, inclusion has come at these painfully incremental steps, whether it happens to be for characters of color or different religions. And the queer community and specifically the trans community is not exclusive in its plight. And I want to remind people not to forget that talking about trans issues and trans identity on a larger platform, on a national platform, is relatively new. Maybe the last 10 years, I would say probably more specifically, maybe the last five or six years and the changes that have happened. And I see, yes, there have been a lot of changes. Where do I see it? I see it in the characters that are put out. I see it in the way the characters are described. But I also wouldn't say that it has just happened. It has happened on the backs of many people. There have been amazing trans performers through the years going back to 70s and 80s, people who definitely questioned the norms. I'm going to go back as far as someone like Divine, who wasn't necessarily trans, but definitely questioned people's ideas of gender nonconformity. So I would thank Divine and John Waters for those movies. But within the last five, 10 years, the show Transparent, Ryan Murphy's Pose, the shows in New York theater, whether they happen to be Strange Loop with some of my friends in them. A friend of mine, Shakina Nafak, who's actually the first trans actor to be a series regular on a network sitcom. You know, that has never happened before. But to just say that it has happened, I think it would be doing a disservice to all the people who have inched it forward. All the people like Alexandra Billings, people like Bianca Lee, people like Shakina Nafak, people like Ivory Aquino, the cast of Pose, it has been inched forward. And through that, there has been more education about what is trans, who is trans. The community has been educated about different forms of identification. I think the internet and social media has been helpful in different people being able to see things that they would not have been able to see had there not been internet. I feel things are moving. And I mean, last year as a Middle Eastern actor who happens to be trans, I got to play a judge. I got to be a guest star on Law & Order SVU, which is not the most liberal show when you think about it. It's a network cop show, basically. But I got cast and that was very significant for me. Because usually as a trans person on those shows, there would have been very different roles available to me. As I'm sure you know, the tropes, the right, sex worker, yes. the tragic character, yeah, right. kind of, or as a Middle Eastern person, something to do with terrorism or immigration. But here I was, I played a, judge. a character, yeah, a character in, in her power, in her truth. And I feel if that has happened, we have come long ways. We have come mm. long ways. You were great. I saw saw the episode. I caught up on all my Law and Auto SVU's Chicago (laughs) PD, all those shows. It is. It's a a wonderful show. We do have some questions from the audience. Question number one, who do you believe should be telling these trans stories? I'm a firm believer that we can all tell stories. However, one of the reasons I'm also a script consultant 
and a consultant to Casting Society of America's diversity section is I would never keep anyone from wanting to tell a story. But I also invite people to know their limitations in talking about stories that is not personal to them and that they don't know everything about. And that is when they should bring consultants. Because when a story is told with authenticity, it's just naturally a better story. And we know that when it comes to stories of women, to stories of people of color, when it has that inner authenticity, it's just a better story because it's more human as opposed to someone's idea of that story. Well, also, if you're going to have the consultant, listen to the consultant. That's something that happens, too, where people do that for the show of it. But like, are you going to listen and take the advice? You mean lip service? Yeah, yeah. lip service is done. But I'm also an optimist. And I believe that change happens slow, unfortunately. It's like tectonic plates moving. It happens incrementally. But the fact that people are now open to consultant, that makes me believe that we have come a step forward. Then the next step would be to actually listen to them, to actually ask for guidance as opposed to, oh, we have a counselor here, a consultant here, kind of like for window dressing. Also, there have been shows that have actually brought writers that are authentic to stories that are being told. Like, I would never dare to talk about the experience of someone going through uterine cancer because I would have no idea. And I don't know why someone would think that they would have an idea of what a trans experience would be like. I agree. We have another question from the audience. Who inspires you? Oh, my God. I'm not going to pick one person. A whole lot of You may have a few. Okay. Give me five. Three to five. Five. Okay, I'll I'll give you five. Okay. Sure. First of all, I'll give you Shakina Nafak because I just think she's just the light. She has written this beautiful play that I got to do an audible recording of Chambori Hotel. It's, oh my God, the audience. Wow, you are going to love this. So Shakina, Alexandra Billings for having stood in an industry where we were not in mode and for kind of persevering to get to this point, her talent, her humanity. I love people who are generous. I love people who are generous with their souls. I am a huge fan of Viola Davis. When somebody is talking crap, the way that woman can roll her eyes and just say a whole lot without saying anything, Mm -hmm. her strength, her power is just, I think it is just like amazing. I have to give a shout out to Oprah because we share a birthday and it's like there have been so many things through the years that she has said that has rung true to me like the art of surrender of just surrendering yourself to things that are beyond your control and to be honest with you I always kind of thought of myself as a young Anne Bancroft sort of you know sorry Anne Bancroft <laughs> what are you looking for Anne Bancroft is an icon and one of the most magnificent actors that ever walked this earth and during the pandemic I actually read her biography And one thing that I loved about it, I felt so many similarities because here she was a New York actor who did not meet the beauty aesthetics of the time that she was acting in. She wasn't like the stunning sex symbol, like, I don't know, Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor, whoever at that time. But she persevered and she picked her projects and the projects that she did. Again, it gets back to what Charlie and Maggie were saying. It's the respect for the work. And you see it in the work. I think that she's very underrated, but she's just somebody I always thought it's like, I'm like, you know, I could like, if there was a biopic of Anne Bancroft, I would definitely throw my hat in there. But in a general sense, who inspires me? People who believe 
that when you share of yourself, there is more of you. People who stand in their truth, people who always seek their truth, people who can admit when they're wrong, people who can admit when they don't know something. The combination of humility and generosity is just an intoxicating combination for me, which is why it's very hard for me to say who inspires me. There are a lot of people. On a personal note, I'm so glad you mentioned Shakina. And the thing that a lot of people don't know is how supportive Shakina was in the development of A Strange Loop. A Strange Loop would not have happened without Shakina very quietly and very protectively taking such good care of that weird little show that then became this thing. And for years, it wasn't like for five years, she protected that show and said, no, come on, keep developing, keep going, keep going. So I always have love for her. I was so struck by what you just said about not coming out as participating in a way in your own suffering. I'm going to take that and just put that in the bank for myself. There is a question here, and it kind of ties to a question I was going to ask you about being an immigrant, (laughs) because I'm an immigrant and I gay immigrant and that experience. But the question from the audience is, you talked about what this country aspires to and how it often falls short. What do you think about what is going on in the country, in this country now? I sometimes philosophize, so I'll try to keep it short. I believe that the stuff that we're seeing is the disease that has existed in the identity of this country, and not just this country, but many other countries. The foundation on which it was built slave labor, exclusion of a whole lot of people. So that has always been part of the identity. And I feel like we're in a moment of reckoning. But I also believe that if you have a disease, they always say you get worse before you get better, kind of like a cold or flu. And I feel we're in that worst part before we get better. I feel we are now seeing the evils that have existed, but were not talked about. I feel they are coming to the surface. It's like we are exercising the demons unintentionally. We did not quite intend for the demons to come out to the surface the way that they are, to be so blatant about the value of life of someone of color versus someone who is white. And I feel social media, just being able to record all of these things and show it to thousands and millions of people has obviously changed a lot of perspectives because you can talk and talk, but when you see it, you can't deny it. And I feel that's where we are. I feel we are exercising those demons. We are facing them. And some people don't like facing them. And this is one of the steps. I'm not going to say this is the step, but this is one of the steps to get to a point of saying, okay, now we have seen what the problems are and let's work on the solutions because I don't think we've quite gotten to figuring out the solutions. I think we are still not exactly on the same page as to what the problems are because as you know, there are parts of the country who don't believe there's a problem at all. We live in a post-racial society as was said, I don't know, you know, (laughs) six, seven years ago. And I feel that's where we are. We keep going. That's why I said it's like a video game. Now we've gotten to this part of the American evolution. This is where we are through the years. We have now questioned. We have had the Rosa Parks and the Dr. Kings and all those people who did what they saw as what was necessary to do at their time. 
But now we're realizing just having those people isn't enough. People on every level of society need to be involved to get this wheel moving forward. Beautifully said. Unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. I think John and I could continue listening to you for a few hours. So when we hang Very up, John's going John's to call you and we're going to finish this, this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but I would. I mean, I, I feel like especially when it comes to training and who we've trained with and John speaks that same language too. It's all one artistic family and it's such an honor and a privilege to hear you speak about your craft and your artistry. I admire your voice, not only your voice on stage and film, but your voice for people that don't have one. You humble me. Yeah, and I'm, I mean I'm, that genuinely. It was such an honest and raw interview, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I can't wait to call Maggie and Charlie when I'm done with this and say, hey, I, I just made a new friend. So mm. thank you so much. It, it is my privilege, and I'm grateful for that, both of you. Yes, thank you. Just one thing that just struck me in the last thing that you said, and I will thank you for this, finding hope in seeing ugly things, right? So we're seeing all of these ugly, ugly things, and we're seeing these very difficult things. And what a wonderful perspective to be able to say, that is the disease coming for us so it can be eradicated, right? Like it has to get worse before it can get better. Like that has given me such hope. And that is definitely something that I'm going to tuck in my pocket and keep. So thank you for that. And it really was tremendous getting to know you and getting to speak with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank I thought you, you were going to break into a song, Getting to Know You. <laughs> well, as we say in Jamaica, well, I'll just say, walk good. That's what we say in Jamaica when we're saying goodbye to someone. We say, walk good. So walk in this walk world good. good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I have a feeling we're going to meet again. Thank you to our participants and our audience. You've escalated it to such a different level. So I thank you guys so much for your questions and your time and for joining us at Live at the Lortel. We're so honored. And that's our show. Next week, my co-host will be the incredible Daphne Rubin Vega. We will be interviewing Karen Olivo, the Tony Award-winning television, film, and stage actor most recently seen on Broadway as Satine in Moulin Rouge. That interview will air on November 13th. Then I will be joined by our new co-host, my friend Joy Michel. Joy is an actress, seeker, storyteller, transformational coach, self-healing practitioner, and above all else, a mother, wife, and daughter. She and I will interview Betty Shamir, an Arab-American playwright with several off-Broadway premieres, including Roar, the first play about the Arab-American experience to be produced off-Broadway. That will air on November 20th. For more information on these guests and how to attend one of our future recordings from the comfort of your own home, please visit our website, liveatthelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.